here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hello podcast listeners, Carly here. Author Accelerator is on a mission to change the way people learn to write books. Instead of writers struggling to figure things out on their own, Author Accelerator trains book coaches to give writers the real accountability, editorial feedback, and emotional support needed to write books worth reading. They offer a writer matchmaking service to pair writers with the best book coach for their project. They also offer a variety of events for writers ranging from free workshops to high ticket incubators aimed at getting your polished manuscript or book proposal in front of the eyes of the industry's top agents. And I am one of those agents. Whether you're ready to hire a book coach or you're thinking of becoming one yourself, you can learn more at authoraccelerator.com. That's authoraccelerator.com. 
those of our listeners who are in Ontario or Toronto and surrounds, on the 30th of April, I will be at Blue Heron Books in Uxbridge for Canadian Independent Bookstore Day. Now, I'll be joined by other Canadian authors like Terry Fallis, as well as Marissa Stapley, who is the best-selling Reese's Book Club pick author of Lucky. We'll be there from 1 to 3 p.m. and we would absolutely love to see you. Come and join us, say hi and support an indie bookstore at the same time. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hook segment. Today we have the two authors joining us so that Carly and Cece can discuss their query letters and opening pages with them and so that the writers can ask us some questions in the process. So we've got Kim with us this morning who'll be kicking it off by reading her query letter. Thank you. Dear Ms. Lira, you requested a full manuscript from me on a prior submission, and while it wasn't a perfect fit, I thought of you for my current 90,000-word domestic suspense novel. Wife After Death follows a motivational speaker with a guilty conscience who, when publicly discredited, retreats to Australia. After her estranged husband goes missing, she attempts to revive her career in the States, but the secrets she keeps and the people who know them threaten to end her ambitions and life. Lana and Kay Malloy are America's most aspirational couple, thanks to their sold-out seminars and best-selling self-help book, You Do You. But everything changes when Lana, triggered by disturbing memories, suffers a life-threatening panic attack. To her shock, Kane exploits her mental breakdown and discredits her as a reliable self-help speaker. Humiliated and heartbroken, Lana devises a plan to distance herself from the scandal and restart in a place no one knows her, Australia. Invigorated with a new career at an Australian PR agency, she bonds with the owner, McGee. Living alone on a new continent tests her vulnerabilities as she is confronted by trouble lurking behind every turn she takes. Her problems mount as it becomes clear McGee is hiding a dark past. When she gets a call that Kane is missing, she is compelled to return home. She leaves Australia with more secrets than she came with, but she's too late. Kane is dead. Now is Lana's chance to resurrect her career. But as her circumstances spin out of control, she is haunted by her past. If she writes her wrongs, she risks losing everything she's worked toward. However, it's more than her career on the line now. To survive, Lana will fight her internal demons as she determines who wants to see her succeed and who would rather see her dead. Wife After Death will appeal to fans of Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekinen's The Wife Between Us and readers seeking the plot twists and escalating suspense of a Lib Constantine or Samantha Downey novel. The story explores the dangers of a culture that promotes autonomy over the community. I am a member of WFWA and have essays published on WashingtonPost.com, ScaryMommy.com, Mom.me, etc. Per your guidelines, the first five pages are below. I appreciate your consideration. Sincerely, Kim Mauer. Awesome, Kim. Thanks so much. Right, Cece, why don't you tell us what you thought of the query letter? Kim, we're so thrilled that you're joining us. Thank you so much. I love getting query letters from people who've queried me before because usually I can I can tell how far they've come and it's always fun to see what new ideas are percolating in their minds. So thank you so much for sharing that. Okay, I am going to focus on the query letter first and then we'll do pages. And I wanted to start by saying that Wife After Death is such a great title. Like such a great title. I loved it so much. I love that you're giving me word count and genre. And again, the great, great title. I do think we should bring the comps up to the first paragraph just because it positions the book a little bit more clearly. I also think that you're giving me two inciting incidents in the first paragraph. You're saying it follows a motivational speaker with a guilty conscience who, when publicly discredited, retreats to Australia. 
And then you're also saying after her estranged husband goes missing, she attempts to revive her career in the States, et cetera, et cetera. So I would choose one inciting incident to hook us with because like, I, it genuinely felt like I was reading two books. I was like, wait, does do, do I follow these two storylines? I thought I was going to go to Australia with her and then, you know, see her new life there, like understanding her heartbreak from having been discredited. And I realized we we're going to get everything, of course. But since this is the first paragraph, it's a good idea to just choose one thing to hook me. Just so I'm not confused with all the information. I also wanted to talk about the plot paragraphs, specifically the paragraphs that start with invigorated with a new career and the paragraph that starts with now is Lana's chance. I love that you isolated Kane is dead. So small, small thing, but I think it will go a long way. Instead of saying Australian PR agency, since you already told us in the previous line that she moved to Australia, why don't you say like Melbourne PR agency or Sydney or whatever city in Australia, because I only know these two, which is depressing. But And I read a lot of Leon Moriarty novels. I should know more. So yeah, I think that that would add a little specificity to it. What I wanted to really talk to you about in these paragraphs is, and I highlighted, so you will get this file and you'll see that I highlighted in yellow all the moments of tension escalation that weren't working. And I'll tell you why I think they're not working. And all the moments that were working in blue. So you'll have two different colors. Yellow is vagueness. So you nailed the verbs, but that's it. Like the what actually happens, I don't know. And so it's super vague. These are sentences that I know they're meant to make me curious, but because they lack specificity, I am not. For example, tests her vulnerabilities. What does that mean? That could mean anything. Confronted by trouble lurking behind every turn. Have no idea what that means. Problems mount, hiding a dark past. And so I highlighted all of these. It's everything from rights her wrongs to fights her internal demons. And it's interesting because these are exactly the verbs you're supposed to use, like I said. And you do it really well when I highlight it in blue. So for example, Kane is missing. I know exactly how that escalates tension. Like I might not understand the nuances of your story yet, but any human being can understand that when someone's ex-husband goes missing, that's a source of tension. You know, she's compelled to return home. We all understand what that means. It's you have to go back to the place that you left in disgrace. Like that's a source of tension. That's very effective. So I would look at these moments that I highlighted and really just clarify, maybe even trim down because you don't need like I highlighted it. I can't even count right now because it's, it's too many, but I highlighted at least like a dozen of these vague plot escalations. So pick two or three leading up to the climax that will really paint a scene to the reader. Because, and this is where the big picture note comes in, I have to be honest, I don't know what happens in this book after she returns home. Like, after she resurrects her career, I have no idea what happens. If you read that paragraph, I think you'll see what I'm saying. Like, now Lana, now is Lana's chance to resurrect her career. I don't know a single thing that happens in that paragraph, specific thing. Like, I understand that there's someone who wants to see her dead, which is obviously very intriguing, but that's it. Um, I don't know anything else. So so I would specify that. I also don't understand whether Kane's death is supposed to be ominous or tragic. Like, is his death connected to the threats against her life? Because if so, that's not clear. And it feels unrelated right now. And if it's related, then it's a great source of tension. So I would clarify. And like, what happens to the McGee storyline? Like, does he just disappear? Because he's in that paragraph. Right now, she goes back and it's like McGee does McGee come back? Does he like, is he like a ghost who resurrects? I don't know. Like not, not a literal ghost, just, you know, someone from the past who comes back. Yes. So these are my questions. Like all in all, just so you understand that this is not me picking on you, I promise the job of the query letter is I'm supposed to read it. And I'm supposed to go, oh, 
you know, I, I really want Lana to be able to XYZ, or I wonder if Lana will be able to, and I don't really have the words to finish that sentence in a way that's super, super specific. I have big picture stuff, stuff like, will she resurrect her career? But that's too vague after having read a full query letter. When we get to your pages, I will have a very different assessment for you. But this is my assessment of the query letter. I hope it's helpful. And I wanted to also say that the author paragraph is perfect. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Before we go to Kim to sort of pick her brain on some things to see if we can help resolve some of the issues. Carly, did you have anything you wanted to add? I just wanted to add that um, I saw you taking furious notes. And one of the things I just want you to know is that Cece is going for perfection. Like Cece just picked it apart because what I'm seeing in Cece is like Cece wants this to succeed. Cece really wants this to be perfect. I think the way that it is, if you haven't got agent requests, I'd be shocked. So like, I'm sure this query, if you haven't pitched it yet, or if this is your first go, I think it's really, I think it's doing well, but CC's like aiming for perfection. So CC's trying to like take you to the next level. I think it's strong, but all of CC points are just, as I said, they're there to, to help you get closer to perfection, but it is really strong and the comps are good. Title's great. And I love their little self-help book. Like you do, you love it all. But yeah, CC's going to help you get to the next level there. What we want is to have a whole bunch of agents fighting over you so you're like i will choose whichever one i want yeah absolutely elevate it baby right so kim maybe now might be a good chance for you to kind of tell cc what some of those things are so that she can figure out maybe what should be included in those plot paragraphs if you want to yes I need this elevated and to show my full vulnerability I originally queried this like a month ago or two months ago maybe even more, and to 10 agents and got nothing but form rejections or nothing at all. This one that I've sent to you guys is revised from that, as is the first pages, because maybe we'll get to that after the first pages, because I was like, oh, no, what? why is this getting nothing, <laughs> you know? So yes, I, I do need perfection, and I appreciate all of the suggestions. And I definitely feel like I am dancing around some plot points because in those lie plot twists. And so I have a hard time talking about how Kane's death is related and why McGee shows up because I don't want to spoil something that comes later, but they feel like big players in the story. And I feel like I'd be remiss not to mention them. I can kind of feel how I could... I mean, where this thing started and where this, where you're seeing it now it has cut out a lot of those like little like random things. But I almost wonder if the Australia paragraph should almost be cut completely and says that she goes to Australia, but it's short lived and she returns home when Kane is missing. And I don't know. I, I just, I, how do you do that without going into your plot twist, which then move the story forward? I feel like I have to mention one thing because it leads to the next thing. And what I would say to that is, you're allowed to share everything up until the climax and you do have to give us something. So I understand what you're saying. Why would she go home if she's not feeling vulnerable? But then I don't think you need to add an entire clause for the test, her vulnerabilities, if you can't share what that is. You could say, you know, invigorated with a new career in Melbourne, whatever agency, she bonds with the owner, McGee, who claims to know nothing or not claims, don't say claims, because that is obviously giving it away, but who refreshingly knows nothing about her former life. And then, you know, the hide, the hiding a dark past, it's not really adding anything. 
What you could do is you could still keep that reference, but then give me some specificity in something else. Like, for example, could McGee be involved in Kane's death? Like, that could be a question. You know, this pressure's mount. Lana wonders what is happening. Is McGee really who he claims he is? Is is he involved in Kane, or could he be involved in Kane's death? Or or could he have been lying when he said he didn't know who Lana was? Even questions like that already give me some indication. That this guy was planted there to to you know grow close to her to gain her trust, and that's you know he has an agenda. And then you know it would be better if you could add a line like, "And is it all tied to the X?" And then X has to be clear. It can't be like dark, lurking. It can't be anything that's vague. Because the more specificity, the more unique this is. Because it it right now it's something that like I would love to read. For example, when like I love these kinds of stories. I love the you know domestic suspense. Tensions escalating stories, and I understand not wanting to give away the reveal. And what you said about dancing around the plot—that's exactly what you're doing. So you're, and I get why, because no one wants spoilers. It might also help to read the back of books. Don't read Wife Between Us because it's—it has great copy for Wife Between Us, but awful copy for anyone to mirror.、Um, but read the back of other domestic suspense books because that might be helpful, just to see like. How they specify because you've read the books already, so you know what the reveals are. How they they toe that line that that might also be helpful. And your first pages are fantastic. So my guess is, if you didn't get any bites, is that the query letter is getting in the way because the pages are not getting in the way.、I'm、telling you that right now. Thank you. Okay. And yes, I read the White Petrina. I've read that book jacket of the White Petrina so many times. I'm like, the shit that no one tells you about writing, they would rip this apart. <laughs> Because it gives you nothing. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. So Kim's now going to give us an overview of what's in those opening pages before we hear what Cece thinks of them. Okay. So we meet the protagonist Lana as she and her husband walk on stage to the applause of thousands, and Lana tells the reader she's thinking about someone, but we're not told who it is. Only that she is an unspoken secret in her marriage to Kane. Lana's internal dialogue tells us she's excited about this opportunity, and it's a career stepping stone, so they need it to go well. However, she's conflicted because they're supposed to be interviewed about how to have a successful marriage, and Lana admits to the reader that she is not in the marriage. She wanted nor portrays. She's then caught off guard when the interviewer asks about her parents' marriage. Lana deflects, and we get a sense that there was conflict there. The chapter ends with Lana's admittance to the reader that she's very much hiding things. And the next chapter begins with Lana and Kane having just finished a week of speaking engagements at a resort and are about to board a van back to the airport. Lana is dreading the next destination, but we don't know where they're headed. A female voice calls Kane's name, and he takes off to greet her. Lana tells the reader it's the first time she's seen that woman in person, but that she knows exactly who it is because she looked her up online. And that's where it ends. Wonderful, awesome, thank you. All right, Cece, we already know you enjoyed them. Tell us more. These are really, really, really strong. Like, there's nothing objectively wrong with these pages. Yes, I have suggestions on how to make them even better, but it's it's really a situation where I finished it the first time and I was like, oh, I was reading a submission for the shit no one tells you about writing. I was not reading like a book, like because I read it on my Kindle. So it's these are just very good, very, very good. You did an excellent job. I would love to read more if you'd like to. To send me more, I just want to lead by saying that. But my job is to give you notes. Let, let me give you notes. The level of intrigue that I felt with being the woman she could never be—you know, with the her right from the beginning—excellent, excellent. Please don't change anything about that. It's it's exactly as it should be. The calibration is perfect.、Um, 
other things that were working really well. There is no unwrapping of gum, no women digging through purses, no phones glowing with half-typed texts. Kane has the room. You set the scene, the all-eyes-on-him scene, with very strong, sharp specifics that just made me go, I'm there, I'm there in the room. There were also some great metaphors, you know, to turn them into little birds wanting to be fed his worst piece by piece. Excellent, excellent, excellent. The tension at the end, palpable. Do I think you could up the tension even more? Yes, because this is me and I'm always like, let's dial up the tension no matter how high it is. And here's how I would do it. Details, details in the clues. You're gonna get the file and you're gonna see a whole bunch of places where I'm suggesting, pick like three or four, your favorites, if you like any of them, but I'll just give you a few examples of of what that might be. So remember the metaphor I just complimented, like the bird? What if you added a line saying something like, once upon a time, she also ate up his lines, but now she knows that they're just as artificial as the plant in the studio. Assuming that's true. I have no idea whether that's true. But that would give me a really clear indication of what's happening. Another example of a place where I felt the tension could be elevated with a little more specificity is when she says, I want him to remember he needs me as much as I need him. It's an excellent line. It would be even better if you were to add something like, lately, he seems to have forgotten ever since the Texas trip. Like, I have no idea what the Texas trip is. But from then on, ever since hearing that, I'm going to keep my eye out for Texas. You're going to give me something, just a little, little thing. And I'm going to keep my eye out for that little thing, like a detective looking for clues. And my brain will feel rewarded whenever I find another piece to add to that puzzle. So the ending, again, like the roots are hidden, just very intriguing. Same with I dread our next destination. Just something like a little, a little bit more. Is it because the interviewer is going to, you know, play hardball? I don't, again, I don't know what it would be. That's not my job to tell you because you know your story. I don't. But if you gave us a little bit more details in these examples that I've highlighted and that you will have access to, um, so will our Kofi subscribers, I think the story would be elevated even further. I also would love to get a sharp sense of her emotions spiking when she sees the woman she recognizes, the one who tagged him on social media. Is it jealousy? Is it dread? Is it fear? I just want a little bit of emotion. Speaking of emotion, there's one moment where the emotional calibration is off. It's page three. So Kane has answered the question about his parents' marriage and she's seen him answer, right? She's, she's given us the burden metaphor, everything. And then we get... Pain, panic crawls from my chest to my throat. After she gets asked the question, she's an intelligent woman. If that question makes her panic, she would have panicked when the interviewer asked that the first time, even though Kane was answering. Because it doesn't matter. Panic doesn't wait until it's your turn, right? Like if you know you're next, panic shows up as soon as you hear the the, the question. So it's a minor thing, not a big deal at all. But but yeah, I I just really, really enjoyed this. This was, this was absolutely excellent. I so want to know who the her is. I so want to know... What's going on with her marriage? Yeah, I'll, I'll shut up now so, so we can hear from you because this was really good. Thanks, Cece. And that explains even more why Cece's being so nitpicky in terms of the query letter. Because if the opening pages are so amazing, remember that the query letter is the gateway to those opening pages. And if it doesn't get agents to click on those opening pages, then they're not going to see how brilliant the opening pages are. Do you have questions for Cece based on that, Kim? No. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Those are great suggestions, and I'll go back and look at those details and see where I can add. I was just trying to make it so snappy. I feel like sometimes I remove details, but maybe I need to add a few more back in there. Yeah, because remember that the things that CC suggested, these are the things that keep the reader actively engaged. You know, you don't want reading to be like consuming television where you're sitting back passively. 
actively consuming it. You want the reader to be making guesses and, you know, going, oh, I'm waiting for this clue and then I can put it in place for myself and I can figure it out. And the more they're kind of looking out for those things, the more actively engaged they are, which keeps them turning pages, which is exactly, exactly what you want. And it's just small tweaks. It's a sentence here or there. It's not like some, you know, big structural changes or whatever. So Kim, thanks so much for joining us. It was wonderful chatting to you. For our listeners, Kim looks absolutely amazing. The rest of us look like schlubs and Kim is beautiful and bright and in yellow and just looks absolutely lovely. So that was a nice, cheerful way to start our day. Thank you, Kim. Thank you so much, Kim, for coming. We so appreciate it. And please, once these are ready, please do send them to me because I really enjoyed them. I'll, I'll reach out so you can have my email address. You all are so sweet and I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. Okay, so that's Kim. We've now been joined by Jessica. Jessica, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you here. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Wonderful. Will you kick us off with your query letter, Jessica? Yes, absolutely. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, to an emerging writer like myself, entering the literary world can feel like getting dropped onto a foreign country without being fluent in the language. Your podcast has served as my translator and guidebook. And for that, and this opportunity, I'm enormously grateful. Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea, 92,000 Words, is a work of women's upmarket fiction told from three alternating female perspectives. The novel will appeal to fans of Barbara O'Neill's When We Believed in Mermaids and Leanne Moriarty's The Husband's Secret. Leah O'Connor's decision to keep an accidental pregnancy leaves her far more domesticated and intoxicated than she ever intended to be. A decade later, her art career is as uninspired as she is, leaving her adrift and vulnerable to her mother-in-law's meddling. Matriarch of the O'Connor family, Christine has just discovered that her son may not be the father of Leah's oldest daughter. She ruthlessly schemes to banish Leah from their male-dominated clan for good. Christine will need to choose between her disdain for Leah or her love for her favorite grandchild. Ashamed of her dysfunctional upbringing, Amy entrusts her sister-in-law with the truth about her childhood. But when Leah's alcoholic behavior starts hitting too close to home, a pregnant Amy must either reopen old wounds or create a future without Leah's friendship. Unsure where to turn, Amy seeks refuge with Christine, just as Christine's snooping leads her to uncover Amy's estranged mother is days away from giving birth to a baby Amy doesn't know exists. Each mother is ensnared in a dilemma. As Leah, Christine, and Amy begin to unravel each other's pasts, they must each dance with the devil. Will their secrets be their salvation or their undoing? Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea is about the consequences of familial deception and addiction. It's a peek behind the curtain into modern-day mommy wine culture with surprising twists and subtle humor hidden beneath the darker mundanity of domestic life. I have a BA in English from UC Davis with an emphasis in creative writing. I am a mom to three fierce young daughters and an advocate for addiction recovery. During the pandemic, I recognized an uncanny likeness to the experience of lockdown and my struggles inside early sobriety almost nine years ago. I felt compelled not only to share my story, but celebrate publicly as a means of finding connection during a time of disconnection. I've been a recurring guest speaker for podcasts on the topics of motherhood and mental health. My articles have been published on Scary Mommy, Yahoo Life, Mom.com, Blunt Moms, Filter Free Parents, and Sonoma Family Life and Mendo Lake Family Life magazines. My writing carries a message of humor, humility, and hope. Thank you for your time and your consideration. Wonderful, Jessica. Thank you so much. 
Right, Carly, will you give us a take on what you thought of that query letter? Absolutely. Thanks for being here, Jessica. I always like to make sure that all the authors know that I am so grateful that you're putting yourself out there for educating yourself and providing yourself as an educational opportunity for everybody else. So we're so, so glad that you're here. I also need to know the name of this headset because your voice is so clear. That is a very good headset and I need to know what it is. Okay. All right. So for the query, I really liked the opening paragraph. I thought it was very clear, very lovely. Sometimes authors you know, don't know how to do that kind of personalized opening. And anyway, I thought it was really lovely and gracious. The title's fantastic. It's very like really strong words, very catching, you know, eye-catching, and also has a little bit of alliteration in it. I don't know. I, I just think it was a really lovely title. Also, for something that is, you know, women's fiction, it's a little bit different than a lot of the other women's fiction titles that we see. So I thought it stood out in, in a really nice way. Okay, so now I'm going to get into the middle, the, the meat of the plot paragraph. So I think we need to rewrite this and I'm going to tell you why. I feel like I almost needed a family tree to kind of figure out what was happening here. And it just made it so complicated for me to kind of wrap my head around what was happening in the plot because I was working so hard to keep everybody straight character wise. So, you know, that's obviously something we can we can talk through here here on the podcast because I just felt like it's a lot of names, a lot of familial connections. I didn't know like who the matriarch was, like if Leah had kept her maiden name you know there's just so many things like who how much time has passed who are the in-laws you know there's just so much relying on these familial connections and coming to this cold was just challenging for me so I think you know we kind of we can we can look at that and you know I'm happy to kind of talk through that on the line level here so another thing that stood out to me well actually first thing is I really 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 like the line about it's a peek behind the curtain into modern day mommy wine culture with surprising twists, subtle humor, hidden beneath the darker mundanity of domestic life. I would move that up to the top so that it frames our understanding of the query letter. So that would be the first thing I would do. Because when you say Leo O'Connor's decision to keep an accidental pregnancy leaves her far more domesticated and intoxicated than she ever intended to be, I thought you were saying that she was like drunk while she's pregnant because you say, you know, her pregnancy and then you say intoxicated. So I thought we were talking about like addiction during pregnancy, which is obviously leads to fetal alcohol syndrome, all these other, like this is a bit, that's a different book, I think, than what you were ultimately pitching me. So that's why I think we need to pick up that, put it at the top as part of the hook, and then yeah, just figure out a way to just make it seem like <laughs> she's not drinking while she's pregnant. You know, she's she's drinking afterwards. And and that's why I think we frame this as like the mommy wine culture. We'll understand that a little bit better. And I think that's a very important topic to to tackle. You know, I think really timely and really ripe for for exploring it in fiction and women's fiction. So that that framing I think will help a lot. And now to the names here. So I think what I'm having trouble understanding is why, like, who's the most important character? You say three alternating female perspectives. So are we talking Leah, Christine, and you have Amy here. I didn't know who Amy was. Like, I I was so confused because Amy, it says Amy and Trust, her sister-in-law. I didn't know if Amy was the child grown up in time had passed or why she would have a sister-in-law if she's so young. Like, anyway, so all of those, like, familial things, I think we just kind of need to, like, strip down and really make sure the reader understands that. Just, you know, get some friends, you know, who can, like, cold read this and, and get 
get them to highlight things that are confusing to them. And that's that's the thing that I think will make this a lot more clear because I think the framing of this with the mommy wine culture, you know, great hook, great comps, great title, the familial deception, addiction, you know, market women's fiction, like you're covering a lot of really important and interesting things. But if we can't follow the, the multi-POV kind of mindset here, I think it's just going to be challenging to kind of help this query make it to the next level. And I thought author bio paragraph was great. I would cut the line that says my writing carries message of humor, humility, and hope. Just, you know, I just think those are words we probably don't need. But yeah, like, ask me all the questions. Let's let's figure out this middle here. I'm, I'm happy to kind of work through it with you. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Before we go to Jessica, I just want to check if Cece has anything she wants to add. I just wanted to say that I also thought what Carly did about the intoxicated while pregnant, I, I had to reread it and I figured it out eventually, but but it's for sure giving off the wrong impression. So I would tweak that sentence. I, I, that would be a different book. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Jessica. I would be interested in your perspective on because of the family tree, and I've gotten that comment before, would you recommend only doing it from a single POV to keep it less complicated in terms of just for the query letter? Is that is that something that you I, think I, would be yeah. helpful or should I definitely delineate into three? Yeah, so I would probably just start writing both of those queries. I would write the query, even say like it's multi-POV, but then frame it through the one point of view and then rewrite this. So I would have two options and just ask people like, which one do you like better? You know? So I think really just exploring what other people think coming to this cold like I am would be, would definitely be important. I think writing multi-POV queries is like the hardest thing to do because I said this before in the podcast, when I pitch multi-POV stories to editors, like I have to do what you guys are doing and I understand how hard it is. So what I always, always come back to is is how are these three stories connected more than they're different, right? So what are the implications of the three intersecting stories? To me, that's like, that's kind of what the hook here is. So when you say it's a sneak peek into the curtain into modern day mommy wine culture, great, right? To me, like that's, that's what brings these three stories together, not what sets them apart. So really focusing on that is key. This query might benefit from you just writing the query in one point of view for the sake of the query letter, right? Because the query letter's job is just to get agents to read the book, right? That's the whole point. And so I don't think it's like you're pulling the wool in front of anybody's eyes or anything like that by not telling all three stories in the query letter because it's hard <laughs> and it doesn't, it's not easy, right? The point is like, how do we convey the story? How do we make it interesting? How do we get people to request the pages? And so if you think that telling it probably through Leah's eyes, you know, just the query letter through Leah's point of view and then make like a last sentence that says, you know, intertwined as the other two stories, you know what I mean? Like explain that we're going to get again, that we're going to get all, all three stories. I'd really play around with if it was me. I'd be, which again, I pitch books all the time to editors. I am doing this. I'm writing different versions. I'm writing a one character version. I'm writing a three character version. And I'm just always asking myself, why are all of these three stories in one book? Why is this one book, right? Why, why isn't this three story, you know, and, and trying to put myself in the editor's perspective and thinking, why does this story matter? Why does it matter that these three intersecting lifetimes and lifelines are one book? So just really focus on what brings them together and less so what sets them apart. I also, I think I got caught up to in the third paragraph, I've been given the advice to, you know, focus on plot, less so on theme. And so I'm just curious, how would you recommend is my thematic elements on point? Yeah, it's this is hard because you're trying to do a lot. You're trying to tell three stories and a hook and like what what it's going to be about. So I would think when in doubt, err on the side of plot. Because the other thing is, in this last paragraph, you say each mother is ensnared in a dilemma. And so 
I want to know how that dilemma impacts all three storylines or all three, you know, families. It says, as Leah, Christine, and Amy began to unravel each other's past, they each must dance with the devil, right? And that's vague. We don't know what that means. The devil, we're assuming, are there addictions? So maybe you need to name it there as opposed to like trying to make a link between that and the title. So yeah, I would say the most interesting part of that paragraph is the last line, which is the one that I said, pull that out, put it at the top. My other question has to do with spoilers. I've heard a lot at length about how everything up until the climax is fair game. But when it comes to the level of secrets and the number of secrets. Yeah, this comes up all the time and everybody errs on the side of not telling the secrets. Nobody errs on the side of telling it all. And that's that's a problem because nobody's towing with that line. Everybody's so scared of that line. They're like, nobody wants to touch it. <laughs> but we need everybody to like try and touch that line or get as close to that line as you can. Another thing I like to remind everybody because it feels unnatural to the writer because you're like, this is my query letter. These are my pages. These are all connected. I just want to remind reader writers and yourself, obviously, that I don't read the query letter and then immediately dive into a 300 page manuscript. I read a query letter. I say, yes, no, flag it or start in my inbox, send it to the assistants to request. Then it comes back to me. Then I put it on my Kindle app on my phone and then I'm reading. So if you tell me more in the query letter, I've probably forgotten by the time I read the manuscript, which is a good thing that's in your favor because you can tell me way more to hook me. And that's what I'm saying. It's like, nobody wants to get close to that line. And I need all of you to touch that line because if that will get you the request then get as close to that line as you can possibly get i know it's unnatural for writers just think in that way but like that's what i'm thinking so if you want to hook me really toe that line and tell me more rather than less because everybody tells me less when i really want to know more that's really helpful thank you okay jessica will you give our listeners an indication of what's in those opening pages sure So we open with Leah coming to after a night of drinking at what we learn is a regular event, Sunday night dinners at her in-law's house. Her youngest daughter immediately demands her attention and Leah calls out to her son for help, which seems to be a common occurrence. When Leah tries to get in the shower with her husband, Lucas, she's able to use the promise of sex as an official get out of jail free card for what she can't recall was her behavior from the previous night. Downstairs with her kids, Leah indicates that Lucas is able to escape by leaving for work, and she cannot. She contemplates how she ended up as a mother of three in this domesticated life, when after college she was only interested in painting, traveling, and surfing. We get a time and location stamp as a flashback of 2001 in Half Moon Bay, California. After graduating, Leah is traveling in her van along the California coastline. She stops in a local surf shop. She engages with a store clerk and a man that's dressed in a suit who we learn is Lucas. She inquires about a specific bumper sticker and then lies about why she's interested in that particular one. After the clerk steps out, Leah and Lucas engage in some flirty banter and decide to go surfing together. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Carly, what was your take on that? Yeah, okay. So... I didn't say this before, but you did everything in Garamond, and Garamond is always my favorite font, and so I'm always like, I just love it. Then I... I know everybody knows that now, so everybody sends it to me. So I really like how you did the like chapter one, Leah, how you kind of like spaced it out and did that little like typesetting type of thing. It looks amazing on the page here. I only worry though, if somebody was to send it to their Kindle app or their iPad, whether that would get messed up a little bit. So maybe just do like a test, put it onto a Kindle, like put it onto an iPad just to make sure it looks the way that you want it to and doesn't kind of get moved around. So overall, I always find it challenging when we're opening with a domestic scene. 
so we're opening with this like you know she's in bed she's waking up you know the kid it's it's so common and so familiar and so what we need to do is really instead of instead of bringing the reader in i think in a very everyday moment we really need to emphasize like what makes this house unique more than what makes it mundane and i think a lot of domestic fiction and a lot of women's fiction is exploring that line between what feels familiar about the domestic and how we bring our readers in to, to be like, hey, we know we've been through this before. You know, we know what this feeling is and a novel, right. And making it compelling and making it a page turner. So what I'm seeing, the things that you're trying to, you know, set things apart is obviously the fact that she, like, she can't get out of bed and she has to kind of have her children rally themselves in the morning. So that, that is unique ish, but I don't know if that's like enough of a, a something to kind of to, to start it off. So if you really feel committed to opening here, really just focus on what is specifically unique about this household more so than what was common about this household so there is a play also in your in your language between like more literary writing more flowery writing and more kind of straightforward like plotty writing so I made a note and you'll see this when when I send the notes over in terms of like what flowery language I liked what flowery language I didn't like as much and which ones I think just need to be like tweaked and and what metaphors kind of need to be massaged a little bit I didn't love the opening line because it just felt like a mix of imagery for me. You know, you have in the night, all the salt from the sea must have slipped down my throat and soured my insides, whittling me by the spoonful until it hollowed out like a pumpkin. So we had like water imagery. Then we had pumpkin imagery, which to me is like fall imagery. I just wrapping my head around the imagery in that was just a little bit more challenging. So that would be one that I would rework. But there was some I really, really liked. So, you know, there was, I flagged a ton here. Let me see which one I want to pick out. The line, but then Lucas happened. Funny how someone can be the seed that grew the tree when I had no intention of putting down roots. Like that one's beautiful, right? And so I think there's just, you know, a figuring out which of the more lyrical language is working and in which just needs to be reworked a little bit more. The moments I think you're thriving here are these like romantic interactions between the couple, I think really, really, really strong. I really liked the thinking she needs to use sex to kind of like placate this like tumultuous moment in their marriage. And then does she always need, you know, turn to sex to kind of win him over and how you how that is used in a marriage as like a pawn or not, you know, and, and everybody's feelings about that. I just thought that was really when you were thriving. I thought that was great. You know, there's the the sexy moment of like them being in the shower, you know, just like little little touches like that, I think are and and I think the juxtaposition which you get at in the novel. At one point, you can have this like 30 second cute moment and then 30 seconds later, the children are yelling at you and they're covered in peanut butter and there's like yogurt smeared on the walls and you have to go deal with it, you know? So I thought that was the part where I thought that you were thriving. Another line I really liked was, over coffee, I used two slices of bread to wipe the remaining peanut butter off Abby's elbow, smashing it together as a sandwich I'll consider breakfast. And so that's when I think in the domestic moments, you're shining, right? So like focusing on like what's unique about this family, again, as opposed to what makes it mundane. And then we move into our going back into the past when when the two of them meet at the surf shop and really from from there on out I think you thrive like I think you really thrive in these cute moments the flirtation between the couple like clearly the way that you're writing this makes me feel like this is very much going to be centered on you know their marriage and and maybe how that that's complicated throughout the whole book so yeah I think as I said just check out the parts that I flagged that maybe were a little bit clunky and could be 
reworked. And then from there, I think you're really, yeah, you're thriving in those intimate moments, which not everybody can write that. So I thought you did really good there. Wonderful, Carly. Before we hand across to Jessica, just as a creative writing instructor, I want to say that when it comes to writing beautiful sentences or sort of more flowery things, when it comes to imagery in terms of metaphor and simile, when you do that, you want the reader to kind of highlight that sentence because they love it so much. But you're aiming for that every three or four pages because you want that one sentence to land and they go, oof, this is beautiful and they highlight it. Whereas if you're trying to make every sentence like that, if every sentence is beautiful, then no sentence is beautiful because they're going to stop highlighting because then they highlight the entire book. So that's kind of the balance you're going for there. All right, we're handing across to Jessica now. Jessica? Thank you for all that feedback. It's incredibly helpful. I really appreciate it, Carly. So I think my question is, how do you recommend transitioning between the present day and the flashback? And did that work for you? So the way that it fell on my page was it just happened to be, oh no, it wasn't quite a page break, but it was kind of around a page break for me. So there was a natural, you know, a natural moment there with a page break. But I think, again, like people could be reading it on iPads and or printed out or Kindle, right? All these other ways. So I would do a double line break or like the three asterisk stars kind of like in the middle, if we're really going to be taken out of that moment. I think the asterisks sometimes can be distracting. So I actually personally just prefer like a triple line break, you know? just like something where there's a spacing. But otherwise, I think it works. I'm always really hesitant going back to flashbacks so early in in the book, but I really liked it. As I said, because I think you thrive in these intimate moments between the couple. And I really liked your writing there. So I was thrilled that we kind of were able to see that other side of them. For a domestic novel, I thought that was great, but I would just do like a triple line break or something visually where there's a break. Absolutely. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right. Thanks so much, everyone. That was another wrap on a Books with Hooks. And now we go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. 
The other language learning apps use spe speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information, and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matcha page. And please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. This is just a reminder about the courses we've got coming up. On the 28th of April, Cece will be hosting a writing tension webinar at 8pm Eastern Time. To sign up, go to my website, biancamaray.com and look under the courses tab. And then you've all been asking me for another writing group matchup or a beta reader matchup. And so I've decided to do the great beta reader matchup. Go to my website, biancamaray.com, look under the Beta Reader tab to get more information about how to sign up for that. Those of you who've listened to the podcast for a while will know that I have a passion for ensuring that African voices are read across the globe and not just in Africa. And you'll also know that I really love my indie publishers. On the 27th of April at 1pm Eastern Time, I'll be working with Rising Action Publishing Collective in support of the Grandmother's Campaign, an initiative of the Stephen Lewis Foundation, who does absolutely amazing work in Africa, helping so many of the grandmothers there who were left as caregivers after the AIDS pandemic. Now, the book we'll be discussing is No Be From Here, a finalist in the Grey Wolf Press Africa Prize 2019, written by Natasha Omakodian Kalula Banda. The event is free, and if you're available that day, please go to Eventbrite to register for it. I promise it's going to be a wonderful conversation. Today's guest is the New York Times bestselling author of Wench and Balm. She was a finalist for two NAACP Image Awards and the Host and Write Legacy Award for Fiction. And she was awarded the first novelist award by the Black Caucus of the American Library Association. She lives in Washington, D.C. with her family. It's my pleasure to welcome Dolan Perkins Valdez. Dolan, welcome to the show. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah, it's so wonderful to chat to you. For our listeners, the book that we're chatting about today is Take My Hand. It is such an incredibly, incredibly powerful novel and just so beautifully written. So it's a wonderful treat to get to chat to Dolan today and really pick her brain about it. Dolan, for our listeners, could you please just tell them the inspiration for the novel? Well, I was inspired to write about these 
girls who had been sterilized at such a young age in 1973, Minnie Lee and Mary Alice Ralph, who were 12 and 14 years old at the time. I was very curious about them. But what really prompted me to write the book was when I saw this line in the Montgomery Advertiser given by the supervising nurse who had originally been sued along with the clinic after the girls were sterilized. She said that it must have been okay to sterilize the girls because all eight nurses who worked at the clinic were black. And I said, what? Wait, what? (laughs) So I began to research. I couldn't find anything about the nurses, actually. And I honestly don't even know that that's true, but I believe it probably was true. And so I just began to imagine what it must have been like to be a nurse working at that clinic and have something like this happen under your watch. Right. And what this happened in terms of the historical context, you know, you've spoken about how you were so shocked that this had happened soon after it was the syphilis trial. Could you Could you tell us a bit more about that as well in terms of that clinical trial in which men thought that they were receiving treatment and they weren't? That's right. I grew up hearing about the Tuskegee syphilis experiment because my dad graduated from Tuskegee in the late 1960s. And he told me that there was this experiment that it lasted about 40 years in which these men thought they were going onto the campus to receive health care, but they were actually being studied for the untreated effects of syphilis. Some of them were given placebos. Some of them didn't have syphilis, but many of them did. And this went on for 40 years. And not only did they study the effects of syphilis, which is untreated, a horrible disease. It causes all kinds of problems with the body. After some of those men died, their cadavers were autopsied for further study. That study came to light by a whistleblower reporter for the Associated Press in the summer of 1972, and the study was ended. But the effects of that remained. The, the, the fact that the federal government had openly, really, used these Black men in a, in a medical experiment. A year later, the Ralph sisters are sterilized by a federally funded family planning clinic. Yeah, boy, I tell you, it was, it was so eye-opening. And you know, my background, Dolan, so I come from South Africa. And so, you know, South Africa has got so much to unpack in terms of its own racism, in terms of its own, you know, apartheid, etc, etc. This was stuff that I had never heard of. So I wanted to ask you, is this stuff that's taught in American schools? Is this stuff that you learned about during like history in in your own school? Or is this, you know, stuff that you just happened to find out about completely separately. Well, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and I definitely, nowadays, a lot of schools do offer African-American history, but when I was growing up, there was no such thing. So I didn't learn any of this through school. I will say that one interesting thing about this particular story is that if you Google it, there is a lot of information online about the Ralph sisters, about the case, Ralphie Weinberger, but still there are a lot of people who don't know about it. And I wanted people to know about it. I thought everyone in this country needs to know what happened and what continues to happen. So I would say that this is not commonly taught. I have heard scholars talk about issues of reproductive freedom, and and they didn't mention this case. So I want this to be something that people know about. Especially now, because we're hearing about so many states that are, you know, stopping the teaching of black history or stopping discussions on critical race theory, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, for me, when a novel really 
hits that amazing sweet spot for me is when it's both entertaining because this book was a page turner. You you got us so immersed in civil. I was just so invested from page one, like really, really invested in her. But at the same time, I was learning something and my horizons were being expanded. And I was like being like, holy hell, how is this something that actually happened, etc. So so for me, that's when a novel is just really doing that heavy lifting. It's teaching the reader something while it's entertaining them. And you've said, you know, about the moral and ethical questions that you've explored in this novel. And as somebody who's written two novels, you know, about white privilege in terms of being raised white during apartheid and being brainwashed to be racist, I know how difficult it is to strike that balance between trying to get the reader to understand this perspective without smacking them over the head with this moral story. And of course, we as writers are enraged about these things. That's why we write about them, because we feel so passionate about them. So your advice to our listeners who perhaps are writing, you know, maybe not about the same themes, but who are also writing kind of stories that deal with moral and ethical questions, how did you strike that balance? You know, the history speaks for itself. This is a really good question, Bianca, because you do have to walk that fine line, right? My intention is never to preach to anyone. My intention is never even to change anyone per se, but I just tell the story. And whatever the consequences of reading that story are, so be it. I feel like you don't have to teach and be pedantic or... um or, you know, um, professorial in any kind of way, because the history speaks for itself. And I told a story about a nurse who finds herself at the intersection of one of the most momentous events in history at 22 years old. I tell the story of two sisters who are just trying to be little girls and, you know, play with dolls and, you know, pet stray dogs like my kids always try to do. (laughs) So I think the history speaks for itself. And I think for those of us who write about these moments, the readers will come away with whatever they come away with, and you don't have to control that. I hope that by reading it, people just discuss it, right? At the very least, like just want them to know about it and that they discuss it. And But but where those discussions go, I, I don't know. I love that answer as well, because we often have, you know, discussions about the responsibility of the writer and, you know, their relationship to the reader. And sometimes it's so difficult because when we're writing something, we have complete control over it. It's ours. We show up every day and we talk to our imaginary friends and it becomes this bigger thing. But once it goes out into the world, it stops being ours. Critics can pass judgment on it. Readers can misinterpret it, etc. And I love what you've said there is that, you know, it's not your job as the writer to teach people lessons or whatever. You are telling a story and you trust the reader to take away from it, you know, what they will. And I think that that's an important lesson for us as writers is trusting our readers, is saying, I trust them to process this information and be able to take something away from it, which I loved in that answer. In terms of when you sat down to write this, what I love especially about the main character, Civil, is, you know, when you said you read that newspaper article, I think it's so easy to judge a character like her and to say, What do you mean it was fine to do it because eight other black nurses were doing it? And it's so easy for us to go, well, they should have known that this was wrong and they shouldn't have known they shouldn't have done this. And so 
you know, how did you approach writing her from a place of such empathy? Because it would have been very easy to villainize her and yet you humanized her so perfectly that you could feel her struggle, both internal and with, you know, her boss with greater forces. So just for our listener, Sybil really wanted to do good in the world. This is why she was attracted to this job. She really thought that she was, you know, contributing towards society in some way. And remember for our listeners, when it comes to writing conflict, there's inner conflict within a character. This is when they're fighting their own conscience, etc. There's outer conflict, which is one-on-one against another character. And then there's conflict with a character against society. And what Dolan does here so phenomenally well is, is she shows the nuance of these kinds of conflict. So could you tell us how you approached that when you decided to sit down to write this? That is a really good question. You know, I think the first thing we have to do as writers is see ourselves in every single character that we write. If we can't see ourselves in that character, even if it's your so-called antagonist, then we can't humanize them. And so I saw myself in Civil. Civil is messy, <laughs> as we all are, and we make mistakes and we sometimes get checked on those mistakes. And I've been checked myself on mistakes that I've made in my life. I'm still, I have a teenager, so I actually get checked on a daily basis. <laughs> But I will say that she makes mistakes. She loses her temper a couple of times in the book, as you know, often we do. She gets exasperated. She gets impatient with others around her. She is sometimes condescending to the family in the name of helping them. And she learns and she grows. And there is a cost sometimes to our mistakes, as we see in the book. But we hope that those mistakes that we make are not irreversible. We hope that we can make them right. And she wants to try to sort of make them right as much as she can without making the same mistake again, right? She learns that she doesn't have all the answers. She's just a messy character. And I feel that she is a lot like all of us as we are on this journey. And many of us, and I believe uh, you mentioned, you know, trusting the reader. I believe not only do I believe my readers are smart, but I mean, and not just my readers, I think readers in general who read books are smart. I always respect readers. Anybody that picks up a book is smart. But I also believe we have good intentions, right? We all kind of, you know, I, I, I have an optimism of just believing in people. And, but sometimes our good intentions fail, right? In yeah. really remarkable ways. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, good intentions have far reaching repercussions that we never considered at the time. That's something I struggle with my whole life as well. And for our listeners, remember that when we had Britt Bennett on the show, she was talking about assume that your reader is smart. And this is something that Dolan's just said as well. So, so I love it when that advice intersects, especially, you know, what, what I loved about what you were exploring here. So like in my novels, I've explored the notion of white saviorism. But here you've taken it so much more nuanced because Sybil is black and the people that she's trying to help, they are also black. And there's a kind of saviorism in there that's obviously not white saviorism, but that comes from a place when we walk into a situation and we think we know how to fix it. 
because of whether it's our socioeconomic standing or whatever our background is. And you show how humbling that is when you realize what a mistake that is to to walk in with those kind of preconceived ideas. That's right. People often want to talk about things separately. They want to talk about race as one thing. They want to talk about class as one thing. They want to talk about gender as one thing. But I think it's all connected, right? It's You can't really talk about one of those layers without talking about the other two. And there's other layers to that too, right? There's, you know, queerness, there's disability. There's other layers that we could also talk about. And there's disability in the novel as well. One of the girls, you know, she even has to think through her ableism. So I think that one of the reasons I decided to hit head on this notion of white saviorism, particularly because there's a white young white lawyer in the book, Lou, who's based on the real life lawyer who argued the case, Joseph Levin. I wanted to hit that head on so that people knew that as much as Alabama was sort of starkly divided by race, there were still other layers that were happening within those communities that complicated that. And and so Sybil says at one point, you know, I know because a lot of young people really can talk about the white savior trope, but the white savior trope is a complicated one. And so she says to her daughter, I know that's what you're thinking, but let me tell you, all of us came in this situation with baggage and all of us left with baggage. I can't remember the exact line, but that's something that I wanted to really explore that you can't really divide these things. They're all connected. And such a nuanced approach to it because, you know, it's tempting as a writer to try and make it simpler or to go, okay, you know, this might be misinterpreted. Let me focus on this and make this clearer. But, you know, there's so much room for, for nuance in our writing. And this is why a book like this is such a brilliant book club discussion. It'll make for such a an amazing discussion because there's just so much there to, to unpack. I'm going to discuss the structure in terms of the dual timeline structure and the kind of hybrid first and second person that Sybil has in the modern day structure where she speaks to her daughter Anne. But I just want to know first, in terms of your research, I think you said you spent three years researching this and you traveled and you spoke to people. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, I always do too much research and I have to stop myself. I don't know. It's like I decide I want to cook something and I have to look up 10 recipes for it before I decide on one. I don't know what my problem is. And I feel like the same thing when I research my books, right? I go down 20 rabbit holes and I actually already found in the first rabbit hole exactly what I needed. So I did I did a lot of newspapers. That's usually, I always start with newspapers. That helps me. I look through those newspapers. I look at job ads. I look at all the articles. I see what's going on locally. What are the national stories? So I go through the local newspapers. This case was in a lot of national media outlets. I looked through those. Then I look to see if there are any documents that were left behind in special collections. I found a picture of the clinic, so I knew what it looked like on the outside. I look at maps a lot, especially when it's a city where I've never lived. And even with a city like Montgomery, the the city boundaries are very different in 1973 than they are now. I looked at the, so I went to Montgomery and I interviewed Joseph Levin, the lawyer who argued the case. He got out of storage the case files, which had not been removed from storage in 45 years and sat and talked with me. I interviewed Jesse Bly, the social worker who was assigned the case to girls and discovered what had happened to them and was absolutely gutted by it. I drove around and tried to sort of get the layout of 
Centennial Hill, where Sybil lives, the neighborhood where she lives, Alabama State is up the road. I really tried to learn a little bit about Montgomery. So I I went to the federal courthouse where my case was set, even though the real case wasn't set in that courthouse. Uh, I bothered Joe and I said, could you have argued this case in the Montgomery Federal Courthouse? And he said, I could have, but I argued it in D.C. And I said, but could you have? Could you have? (laughs) Yes, I could have. I was badgering him. Because I need it for my novel to work in its own world. I think a lot of times historical novelists can try to stay too close to what actually happened and what's not as narratively interesting. So I was like, I I really want my story to work. And it would not work if he went to go argue the case in D.C. So you were badgering your witness. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And actually, I was very worried when he finally read the book that he wasn't going to like Lou. And this is just my craziness, I said, because Lou eats a lot of junk food in the book. And I wonder if Joe is going to be offended that Lou is eating like potato, living on potato chips the whole time. But no, he loved it. Amazing. Okay, so so in terms of the structure, was it always going to be a dual timeline narrative 2016, and then back in the past? Or is that something that kind of evolved? And could you tell us why you structured it so that Sybil is telling so much of this to her daughter Anne? Like, what does that do narratively that no other structure would have allowed you to do? Well, from the very beginning, I had a reflective narrator. It wasn't a dual timeline. It was a two-headed narrator. So I had a narrator who was reflecting on it and who had the wisdom of the present day. And every now and then she would rear her head and sort of comment on what was going on. The more that I revised and the more, you know, I had a couple of readers who read it who said, you really need to sort of bring that current narrator out a little bit more because every time she comes in, I think it adds something to the story. So it didn't start as a dual timeline narrative. It evolved into one. And then one day I wrote that first chapter, which ended up being the first chapter where she's telling her daughter. And I realized, oh, this is going to be a dual timeline. But I knew it wasn't going to be the kind of dual timeline where you're switching back and forth with each chapter. So the next thing I had to determine was how often would I come into that present moment? And I think when we write a dual timeline, you know, there's of course the traditional 50-50 dual timeline, but there's other variations of that. It could be 75-25, it could be 80-20. And so for me, I really thought that this would benefit more in this sort of like 90-10, you know, 85, really probably 85-15 ratio so that we have the benefit of seeing these characters later in life and knowing what happens to them. Because I thought that was really important for the story because a lot of these people are still alive, including the Ralph sisters. They're all still alive. So I thought like it might be important for us to reflect and let everybody know that like people turned out over okay, right? That like people went on with their lives and that this wasn't something that that killed them or destroyed them. This was a tragic event, but they survived it. And that's to me really important when we write about these traumatic histories, that we write them as stories of survival rather than stories of victimhood. So as I began to include those chapters, I think maybe total there are eight, I got what I wanted. Then of course my editor and I had to move them a lot. Where do we put them? At what point? And we worked on that a lot, just moving them around. And for our listeners, remember what Dolan's talking about now 
now is so much more possible when it's the same narrator in the dual timeline. You know, then you can play around with the 90-10. But if you've got two different narrators in your dual timeline narrative, if you spend 90% with one, it means the reader only has 10% to connect with the other, which makes it much more problematic. But this was so much easier because it was the same character, just at different parts of their life. Well, Dolan, we're now at the end of our time. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. For our listeners, we've got this on our bookshop.org affiliate page. Get it through there. You'll be supporting Dolan. You'll be supporting an independent bookstore and you'll be supporting the podcast at the same time. And please go out, get this book, read it for yourself to learn in terms of craft and choose it for your book clubs so you can have an amazing discussion. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. 
Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.